ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have back with me Callie Edgren. Callie, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again, Tom. So Callie, we are going to take up a topic that until about two weeks ago, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on. <laughs> and if I didn't, I'm, I have the feeling that many of my listeners may not. Mm-hmm. But it is becoming as important as really about anything else in product compliance that I'm aware of. And that is something called PFAS. So if I've got it right so far, could you pick it up from there? Absolutely. So yeah, it's uh, as Tom, I've been working in product compliance for a long time. And this is a game changer, I think, in the materials compliance world for quite a few reasons that I'll get into. But for folks who are just new to this topic, of course, like everything, there's an acronym involved, PFAS. It stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. This is a family of chemicals, just like heavy metals or phthalates or flame retardants. It's a family of chemicals. One thing they have in common is very tight carbon fluorine bonds, but they're synthetic and they've been around about 85 years and they have fantastic material properties like they're impenetrable to water and oil. So they get used for a lot of waterproofing applications. They get used in a lot of electronics because they are actually electrical insulators. They're very tough bonds between the carbon and fluorine and very difficult to break down. And that's given them this nickname of forever chemicals. The problem, of course, with many of those other chemical families I mentioned is that while they have great material properties, there are a lot of health concerns about them. And because they've been around so long and they don't really break down, They've been turning up in water supplies and soil contamination, and they've been linked to a number of different health effects. So what we're starting to see is regulators, just like those other chemical families, are starting to work different PFAS chemicals into regulatory instruments like the Toxic Substance Control Act or EU REACH. And the states have been very aggressive with PFAS because, of course, the states are often responsible for cleaning up those contaminated water supplies. This has really hit the radar for a lot of regulators, a lot of litigators, and just a lot of concerned citizens overall. So let me pick up a couple of phrases or laws that you use. Mm -hmm. First of all, forever chemicals. Can you explain a little bit more about that, what that is? Sure. So forever chemicals is the nickname given to PFAS. It's actually a play on the F and the C for fluorine and carbon, (laughs) but somebody coined the phrase and it's applicable because forever chemicals are considered to be persistent. In fact, they are, there are several PFAS listed now in the Stockholm convention for persistent organic pollutants, because again, they don't break down because of these very tight fluorine carbon bonds. So they, that's where the forever chemicals comes from. In fact, I think is one of the innovations that we're going to see around PFAS is more techniques for actually destroying PFAS because you can filter them out of your water. Now you have a contaminated water filter. What do you do with that? Because they, they can't be destroyed, right? The forever chemicals just means they, they keep bioaccumulating. They're not breaking down. They're not 
working their way out of the environment. And they've just been building up for roughly 85 years. And what we see is some of the original manufacturers of these chemicals, like 3M and DuPont, are being heavily targeted now by litigation, especially from states and municipalities who are looking for ways to clean up water from these forever chemicals. So are there some routine product names that people might recognize? Are there some manufacturing or other uses that we could discuss that people may have routinely used 50, 60, 30 or 40 years ago that now may be uh, subject to some of these new rules and regulations? Yeah, even today they're being heavily used. I just look around my room and I, I see PFAS everywhere, right? Because again, they do have these great material properties. They're really not restricted other than a handful. There are tens of thousands of potential PFAS chemicals because they are synthetic and chemists keep making up new ones. There's only a handful of them that are listed under that POPs regulation, for example, right? So it's perfectly legal to continue using them. And because they have worked their way into so many places, a lot of manufacturers don't even realize where they are. I would say one of the most common questions I get is about Teflon, right? So Teflon is a brand name that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. It's probably coating your cooking pans, right? Teflon is a PFOS, right? Anywhere you see nonstick, stain resistant, waterproof, these are all highly targeted um, applications for PFOS chemicals. Just like asbestos, they have great material properties. They just happen to also be linked to all of these negative health consequences. What is the Toxic Substance Control Act? So the Toxic Substance Control Act, which is often the acronym is often pronounced TOSCA, is the premier chemicals management regulation in the United States. It's almost 50 years old, and I would say it is the equivalent of REACH in the European Union chemicals management realm. TOSCA has been around for a long time. It's administered by the EPA, and most companies in the U.S. are subject to TOSCA regulations. I think for article manufacturers, um, Tosca for a very long time was really focused on the chemical manufacturers. So for example, I've worked with article manufacturers my whole career. Tosca was not the first regulation I was concerned about. I was actually more concerned about REACH because it applied quite more extensively to articles. But Tosca was reformed in 2016, the Frank Lautenberg Act. And um, Tosca is now starting to impact manufacturers. There's a new requirement that just was published on October 11th under Tosca Section 8A7. This was actually dictated by Congress back in 2019. They directed the EPA to basically create an inventory of all of the PFAS use in the United States. And that way, the EPA would have a better idea of which ones to target for research and study and, and future restriction. And on October 11th was the culmination of this process. And the EPA released this reporting rule, which will heavily impact almost every manufacturer in the United States, either if they're making PFAS chemicals themselves or if they're importing PFAS, even if it's already included in a product. So a really good example of this is if you're a U.S. manufacturer and you import your wire harness from, say, let's say you have a factory down in Tecate, Mexico, 
you're importing that wire harness. The wire harness may have some type of Teflon lining as part of the insulation. You are now importing a PFAS into the United States, and you will have to report that to the EPA under this new TSCA rule. And by the way, the reporting volumes have to be by year going back to 2011. So this is a heavy lift for U.S. manufacturers who, again, may not be all that familiar with TSCA unless they're in the chemical industry itself. But this is a new obligation that is required. Kelly, in my world of compliance, which I might characterize as anti-corruption compliance, there's mm-hmm. a process, and that process is generally the following. Assess your risks, whatever they may be. Based on that risk assessment, put a risk management strategy in place, monitor that strategy, and then improve based upon the information you get from the monitoring. Is that type of general process applicable for PFAS or product compliance, or would you suggest a different approach for a company who is just starting down this road? I think the PFAS playbook looks a little different than other materials regulations in the past because it's not the regulation itself is not the only driver in fact i would say it's not even the primary driver so i think manufacturers who could have taken a risk-based approach as you suggested with previous chemical regulations the problem with the pfas story is number one there is a ton of litigation going on around this. And while the litigation heavily targets the actual manufacturers of the PFAS itself and the chemical industry, the litigants are starting to spread towards companies that use the PFAS. And by the way, make no mistake, everybody's using PFAS. There's nothing illegal about using PFAS today. So I think that's a driver that's forcing a lot of companies to say, it's not enough to just assess, is the EPA gonna come after us? Is the state of Maine gonna come after us? That's not really the big issue here. But the biggest issue is that 3M, who is one of the largest manufacturers of PFAS, the originator of PFAS, they are going to not make it anymore as of the end of 2025. This is a huge supply chain disruption. So sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen with the regulations, to me, is ignoring the bigger risk for manufacturers, which is your supply chain is going to be impacted. 3M is discontinuing 21,000 products that they make that are heavily used by Teflon tape, command strips that you might hang on your wall, medical tape that they use for wound care. They're not making anything anymore that has PFAS in it after 2025. And I think that's the bigger risk that in your risk assessment world, it has to be factored in. Are you going to have a supply chain disruption that's going to shut down your factory? Tom, I had one customer tell me that they assessed some of the things being discontinued by 3M and they found a a gasket that they use in all their fork trucks in their factories. They said, we won't be able to maintain our fork trucks anymore. Again, I think manufacturers need to think a little broader for PFAS than maybe they have in the past because it's about much more than just how will this regulation impact me selling my products? Kelly, how does the supply chain or procurement professional begin to assess those issues from their perspective? Is there a list? Is there a resource? Is there some place they can go to begin to try to determine 
what's not going to be available and then wed or marry that to perhaps what they're mm -hmm. currently using? Yeah. So first off, uh, for the 3M question, yes, 3M has posted on their website where they specifically list the 21,000 products that they're discontinuing, which PFAS chemicals are in those products, why they use that PFAS chemical. So it's very helpful, I think, for procurement professionals to be planning that obsolescence driven by 3M. Now, of course, there's other companies that make products that use PFAS, so that may not be so obvious. Uh, but 3M has been very helpful, I would say. I think the first step that companies need to take really is understanding where they're using PFAS, right? You can't assess your risk or know what your next steps need to be if you don't know where you have the chemicals in the first place. And some of those next steps might include a last time buy, right, of materials. But you don't know that if you don't know which materials have the PFAS chemicals in them. So um, certainly, like my company is helping um, our customers do that. We coach engineers to say, here are the common characteristics to look for. Here are the brand names like Teflon. If you have things that you call Teflon, that's a PFAS and you should be aware of that. So I think there's a lot of need for this information and there's resources that are developing for it. But as far as the 3M obsolescence goes, yes, 3M has a list posted on their website. Another resource I point a lot of companies to is actually from an NGO in Sweden called ChemSec and the ChemSec, C-H-E-M-S-E-C dot -E org. They actually have a PFAS guide that is helping manufacturers identify where their risks are and in some cases even suggests alternatives. I think the ChemSec resources and tools are also quite helpful for companies that are just, like you said, it's a bit overwhelming. Where do we start? And that's another good free resource for companies to use. I must admit, I forgot to ask you, what's your current role and who you work for? So you mentioned your employer. Who do you work for and what's your current role? Sure. So I'm the Senior Director of the Regulatory Expert Team at Ascent, Ascent Inc. And Ascent is a supply chain software as a service management company. And my team are basically all the regulation experts. So we have to know what the regulations are. We help our customers understand what those regulations are. I've been working in manufacturing for almost 30 years, though, before I came here. So I've had a lot of painful learning opportunities with trying to help my manufacturing employers comply with just these regulations that just continually come, right? Kelly, if a company wanted to not look specifically at products, but try to determine if they were using any PFAS or forever chemicals, how would you suggest they start that process? So the one of the many problems with PFAS is that there's not very many test methodologies available. As I mentioned, there are tens of thousands of different PFAS chemicals. There's only test techniques for about 50 to 60 of those. And often those tests are regular are restricted to things like drinking water. Testing your article like an engine for PFAS is not really possible. So the regulators, including the EPA and the state of Maine, are suggesting that you inquire via your supply chain. So you have to go back to who would have added that PFAS chemical in the first place to understand which, which PFAS it is and, and at what concentration, because regulators will require reporting on these volumes as well. 
So I think that's really the best way to get started is to ask your suppliers, are there PFAS in the materials you sell us? And I wouldn't restrict it just to things that become part of your products, because again, this isn't just a product market access issue. This is also about your operations. So that, that's how I would get started is by asking the suppliers who would have added the PFAS in the first place. Kelly, twice you have now mentioned the state of Maine. And other than the eccentricity of being the furthest north state of the continental United States, are they uh, ahead of the curve in this area? Or do they have other regulations that you and your team have looked to or uh, checked out? Yep. So actually, Bloomberg has a great tracker for state PFAS regulations that shows 46 states have laws either on the books or in development around PFAS. A lot of these laws are focused on drinking water. We see some states, though, like California, Colorado, issuing product-specific PFAS laws. Like, I get a lot of questions about this law in California around food contact materials that cannot have PFAS in them, like your pans, your cooking pans. But the state of Maine set a new precedent by releasing a law that first off requires all manufacturers selling products in the state of Maine to register any PFAS use in those products. And of course, pay a fee to go along with that registration. And then by the year 2030, they will ban the use of PFAS in all products sold in the state, unless the Maine Department of Environmental Protection decides those are essential uses. Now, that was groundbreaking. Last year, or earlier this year, I should say, the state of Minnesota followed suit with the state of Maine, but actually doubled down and made it a little more aggressive. The state of Minnesota has also a reporting rule that goes into effect in 2026. They have a full PFAS ban that goes into effect in 2032. But beginning in 2025, they have a, a large group of products for which PFAS will already not be allowed. So 2025, you have this group of products, and then in 2032, it'll be all the rest of the products. But this group of products includes things like dental floss and ski wax and some products that you may not even think about having PFAS. As of 2025, it's illegal to sell those products in the state of Minnesota. We see many other states looking to what Maine and Minnesota have done, and I fully expect this next legislative calendar that we will see more states following suit. But Maine was really the first, and a lot of other states are looking to follow what they've done in terms of registering if you're selling products with PFAS and paying a fee, and then an eventual ban on being able to sell those products. Again, there are specific product types that already have a lot of restrictions across the states. Callie, once again, if a company or a potential client comes to you and wants to start this process, I'm almost sensing this is a cross-functional corporate issue. You've mentioned uh, supply chain. I'm, of course, going to throw in compliance. You've also mentioned operations. Mm -hmm. How would you suggest a company begin this process and maybe a couple of steps they can start with and, and maybe who even should be on the group or committee to look at this? Sure. Absolutely. And one other function that I didn't mention, but is the legal department, because a lot of liability insurers are now querying their, their customers to say, are you using PFAS? Because if so, we are either dropping your coverage or we're going to write exclusions in your policies. And this is happening across the board for at least two years now. 
And this is because the EPA is, of course, looking at remediation. They have proposed a few PFAS to be added to CERCLA, also known as Superfund, that will obligate companies, maybe going back decades, to clean up their contaminated spots. So I think legal is another important player to be at the table of a manufacturer. So like you said, you have procurement, you have your product compliance, you have your EHS or operations-related teams, and then I think you have to have legal in there as well. And you probably have to have engineering because at some point you're going to have to redesign your products uh, to eliminate the PFAS once you find where the PFAS are. Kelly, where do you see this down the road? I would say 2025, but that's 13, maybe <laughs> 2030. Where do you see this down the road? Are we looking at cigarette lit litigation, tire explosion litigation, other mass tort litigation that we have seen largely from state attorney generals over the past several years? It's, it's fascinating. I don't think you're going to have to wait till 2030. Earlier this summer, uh, settled a lawsuit with some states for $10.3 billion with a B dollars, just tied to firefighting foam that's contaminated groundwater. The lawsuits for PFAS will come faster and higher. The M in millions is no longer going to be a factor in these settlements. We've moved on to B for billions. Just yesterday, I read my first article that used a T for trillions. Some companies have already declared bank bankruptcy, like Kitty Wall, who makes fire extinguishers. They have declared bankruptcy because of PFAS lawsuits. So I think that 2030 is very far away, and it's definitely going to happen long before that. It's happening already. Entire countries like the Netherlands and Belgium are suing the chemical manufacturers who make PFAS. So again, that's where I'm saying this story is different than any other chemical of concern that I've dealt with in product compliance, partly because of the litigation aspects and who's going to clean up these forever chemicals. Everybody, of course, <laughs> is looking for the money to do that. So I, I think we're going from billions, maybe even to trillions pretty soon, Tom. When I first heard Jared bring this topic up, I was scared, but I have to say I may move more to terrified now. And I'm going to ask if I might be able to come back and continue this conversation with you down the road, because I think it's something we're going to want to continue to revisit. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not going away. It's escalating. And again, my plea is just for manufacturers looking at where they even have them so that they can address the risk, to your point, from all of these different forces, right? The lawsuits, the insurers, the customers who don't want your products anymore if they have PFAS, these are all risks to businesses, and, and they really need to, to understand that it's not going to go away. It's definitely accelerating. Kelly, if anyone wanted more information on the topics we touched on, perhaps wanted to contact you directly for additional information or other resources or the ASCENT website, what, what would be the best place or places for them to go? Yeah, so I definitely recommend if you're interested in me, I do have a lot of articles that I've been writing about these different factors in PFAS. So you can certainly follow me on LinkedIn. And then we also have a lot of things available on our website, resources for manufacturers at ascent, ascent.com. And you can find a lot more information there on PFAS as well. Callie, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit me, and I'm relatively certain we're going to be discussing this down the road. Absolutely. And maybe go home and check your dental floss. But thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. If I can use this 
podcast as an excuse to give my dentist for not flossing. You have made my <laughs> year. Thank You're you. You're not even the first person to say that to me. <laughs> Obviously, it's bad for your health. Yeah. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the ESG Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. The ESG Report is a part of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the network, please give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Hope you look forward to the next episode of the ESG Report.